Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. If you live in the state of Illinois and are seeking therapy, I'd like to recommend the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Through research, education, and clinical services, the Family Institute is one of the nation's leading relationship-based behavioral health organizations and has been committed to providing excellent care for over 50 years. Their team of over 70 clinicians is committed to strengthening and healing the whole family system by bringing together the right partners to support children, adults, couples, and families across the lifespan. I've been a graduate student, a faculty member, researcher, supervisor, and clinician over my decades of affiliation with the Family Institute. I cannot speak highly enough about this place. The Family Institute is here to help, no matter your ability to pay. Therapy is available at no cost for those who qualify. Through the Betty D. Harris Family and Child Clinic, they offer high-quality counseling services to children, individuals, couples, and families. So if you are an Illinois resident and are interested in learning more, visit family-institute.org or head to the show notes. I am so pleased to introduce you to my wonderful colleague and friend on today's episode, Dr. Eli Finkel. Eli is the author of the best-selling book, The All or Nothing Marriage, How the Best Marriages Work. He is a professor at Northwestern University, where he has appointments in the psychology department and the Kellogg School of Management. He studies romantic relationships and American politics and is a contributor to the op-ed page of the New York Times. The Economist has identified Dr. Eli as one of the leading lights in the realm of relationship psychology. Eli has published over 150 scientific papers and is the director of Northwestern's Relationships and Motivation Lab, or RAM Lab, which consists of undergraduate, graduate, and postdoctoral researchers working together to understand all of the nuances of interpersonal relationships. Over the years, Eli and I have remarked to each other that we really enjoy seeing how Northwestern students who have taken both of our classes really integrate the different but synergistic approaches that we take to the study of love. I am grateful for Eli's in-depth research in this field, and I find myself incorporating his findings quite often, whether I'm working with couples or sharing strategies with the general public. I also love being in conversation with him because of his practical approach to relationship dynamics, and I think that you are going to really appreciate his offerings during this episode. Let's dive in. Hi, Eli. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We're hanging out together on campus, the campus that we both love, Northwestern, in the studio together. So that's a really fun way to have this conversation. Yeah, face to face. Yes. 
So uh, because I'm no fool, I knew that when I was going to meet with one of my favorite relationship scientists, I was not going to show up in this space without some very fresh data. So I have some data that I just collected today from Instagram wow. that I would like us to start with. I don't have uh, any IRB approval. This is not a randomized sample of any sort. But I went on my Instagram story and I queried my audience, which is now a couple hundred thousand people from around the world. And they they definitely are more female identified than male identified. And they're people who like to talk about these things. But what I asked was, have you experienced a relationship transition during mm -hmm. this pandemic? Mm -hmm. Have you experienced a job transition during mm -hmm. this pandemic? Have you experienced a major move during this pandemic? I'm intrigued. Uh-huh. And so out of about a thousand people so far who have responded, 54% experienced mm. a relationship status change. Oh, wow. 54%. Versus job was 47%. Mm. And then a move was 29%. And then I was like, okay, well, we can't leave it there. So then I did another sticker. I said, was your transition into a relationship or out of a relationship and basically a two to one ratio with people exiting relationships going from married to divorced or partnered to single. Mm. I did all of that because I really wanted us to start by trying to put our finger on the pulse of like, where are we right now in terms of intimate partnership at this point mm. in the pandemic journey? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What is the, what's on your mind as you think about kind of how to capture how the heck we all are doing around love and relationship these right. days. Well, I mean, certainly your data are the freshest. It is interesting to consider the constraints of the pandemic. It was, in a way, it was harder to enter a relationship than usual, um, just because going on dates was scary and meeting strangers was scary, at least for a lot of the pandemic and for many people even still. And it was certainly a, I don't know, know if litmus test is the right word, but Let's call it a crucible mm -hmm. for people in relationships where there was going to be a lot more time probably alone together. And maybe not all these people were living together. That would have had its own challenges. But among people who cohabitated, were cohabitating at the start of the pandemic, they suddenly had basically a 24-hour companion that they hadn't really planned on. And many of them presumably had very full lives that suddenly got kind of canceled. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they got these exposures to each other. And I presume that there are some number of people who spent the early weeks and months of the pandemic naked and delighted. Um, <laughs> but I suspect a lot of us were like, oh, boy, the things that we liked about each other aren't really on such display. Like, I like that she's so good at what she does professionally or that, you know, I get to see her in action with our friends. Right. Those things went away for a significant period of time. So, yeah, looks like it was a stress test among people who were already in relationships. I presume some relationships ended up stronger as right. a result. But at the same time, it ended up being uh, more difficult to meet people. And there is an interesting analogy. I think you said 47 percent of people had a job transition. I forget if yeah. they were all leaving those tr those jobs. But this is the idea that we're in the midst of the great resignation, the big quit. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I don't think I've ever heard people talking about the big relational quit um, and so maybe we're seeing, you know, it's early and I'm just basing this on these preliminary data, but maybe we're seeing something like a broad life reevaluation emerging from the pandemic. And mm -hmm. if that's true, my guess is that on average, it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Two thoughts. One is I know that sociologists who have studied sort of like collective disasters, especially ones that involve prolonged recovery, right? Mm -hmm. One of those findings has been 
exactly what this data suggests, like significant like spikes in both yeah. entry into marriage yeah. and exit out of marriage. Mm-hmm. That it is, as you said, it's a it's a crucible yeah. for the self of like who am I, what do I want, what matters, and then a litmus test for the relationship as well. I like the optimism of though of like overall, whatever has happened mm-hmm. is a good thing. That mm-hmm. if your relationship if you have taken this time to say, actually no more messing around. I'm going to I'm going to turn towards this partner and settle in and really yeah. make a commitment. Mm-hmm. That is born of something serious and like a clarity around what matters. And if it was during this time that like this marriage has been lagging and kind of withering on the vine for a long time and and now I'm clear enough to say that we can't just keep going this way. That either way, we don't have to evaluate it either way, but, but that the transition, whether it's in or out, hopefully serves people's overall lives. Yeah. You know, th- this isn't just a COVID point. I mean, taking stock of where things are, where priorities are, how things are going in the relationship at work and so forth. That if that is something that COVID caused people to do, and I suspect on average mm-hmm. that it is something that COVID caused people to do, that that is probably on balance a good thing. And in fact, I would like it that we didn't necessarily need COVID to have, uh, you know, every five years, every 10 years or something like taking stock. Absolutely. I was thinking also about couples where they survived the pandemic, but maybe their relationships have been a bit, you know, hmm. <laughs> battered and, and, and tested. And then I wonder if this next chapter is going to need to be one about relational healing, like mm. sort of acknowledging the things that we said, you know, when there was so much stress and so much uncertainty that I suspect there's going to be a need for some healing and forgiveness in the relationships that did make it through, but maybe really did like we're in survival mode for a while. And the things that we do and say when we're stressed mm. and when we're scared mm. and when the world feels so upside down. We, I certainly have not been my best self yeah. for large parts of this. Yeah, I mean that that is fascinating. I'm I'm unaware of research on it, but I I find that idea intriguing and plausible that some people just split, they broke up and moved out, mm-hmm. and that was it. But that some people soldiered forth despite the hardship, either because they valued the relationship so much that they were unwilling to uh, let it go, or or maybe for financial reasons, right? Or other logistical reasons related to kids or or safety reasons related to the pandemic, but they might have endured a level of confined hardship that would have been very out of character under normal circumstances. And and you're right, to the degree that people have just sort of started to emerge, I, at least I hope, really right. starting That's to right. emerge out of that period, you're right, there's probably some real repair work that people can do, which also is in a real way an opportunity. Absolutely makes me think about this concept of like post-traumatic growth, right? right? The ways Mm -hmm. that we, that those difficult chapters give us a chance to say, I didn't like that part of myself and here's what I'm working on. Here's what I commit to going forward and to work on apology and forgiveness. And uh Okay. It's all to be seen, right? Hopefully we get to keep emerging and Mm -hmm. making sense of, of what we've been through. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the all or nothing marriage, and the subtitle is How the Best Marriages Work. I suspect that quite a bit of my audience is already familiar with this book, um, but I would love for you to talk us through what you did that was so interesting and so important, which is basically mapping the history of the institution of marriage onto Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so just give us a sense of the, the kind of like that 10,000 foot view of how our definitions of marriage and our expectations of marriage have transitioned over time. And then I want to hear about what does that mean for what we need to be aware of in terms of cultivating healthy relationships and marriages, given what we want from them. 
I'm delighted with the question. I'll start with a, a slightly more advanced answer that I would give um, if your audience weren't as sophisticated about this stuff as they are. Maslow, of course, uh, talked about physiological and safety needs at the bottom of this hierarchy, love and belonging needs at the middle, and esteem and self-actualization needs at the top. Uh, he built a case that you really can't focus so much on the higher order needs until you've satisfied the lower needs. One of the reasons why that pyramid metaphor, that hierarchy mm -hmm. metaphor ended up being so valuable for me as I was trying to make sense, not only of the psychology of marriage, but also the history of marriage and the sociology of marriage is the institution of marriage, the way we think about marriage has changed pretty radically over time in ways that I just don't think are intuitive to us. That, that is, we're all born into a cultural and historical moment. And it almost feels like we know what marriage is and it has existed that way in perpetuity and probably came down from Mount Sinai <laughs> in, in the form of tablets. Mm -hmm. And certainly the narrative that we have about, you know, traditional marriage just reinforces that idea. You know, Stephanie Kuntz, of course, yeah. has the book that says the way we never were. And, and she's right that the 1950s style marriage was an anomaly. So let's say we go back a couple hundred years. Um, marriage was about very basic things in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, but, but more generally in terms of our needs. It was literally about things like food, clothing, and shelter. And so if you were potentially going to marry somebody and thought, well, I don't know if he's my best friend or, you know, it doesn't like when I kiss him, I don't really feel it at my fingertips, you would have been mocked. Not <laughs> right, not, not because people didn't care. Of course they did. They preferred to love their spouse. Mm -hmm. And if the sex was good, that was great. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the purpose of marriage. It was just far too fundamental to things like survival. Anyway, fast forward, uh, you get industrialization, urbanization, 1850s and beyond. And this new ideal really takes hold that marriage is going to be about the individual personal fulfillment of the spouse. Um, not only that, of course, it's still about a whole bunch of other things, economics and raising children and religion, and sacrament before God, all that stuff. But there's an increasingly dominant view that marriage is about love and cherishing. And so that view really starts to gain ascendance around 1850 or so. By around 1965, or let's call it the 1950s, it's, it's really reached its zenith. This is, you know, leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best, the, the breadwinner, homemaker, love-based vision of marriage, which although we scoff at on average these days, had been the aspirational vision for generations, that, that there would be mm -hmm. enough money that the man could earn, that they could, you know, she could carve out her little slice of heaven in the home and he could go and do the breadwinning and that this was going to make everybody happy. This had been the vision for a long time. And in the 1950s, they really were able to deliver on this longstanding vision. And, and as for we can- For seven minutes. For seven <laughs> minutes. It was something like 15 years, right? So call yeah. it 1947 to 1962, something like that. The Great Depression happens and World War II happens. And then all of a sudden, a, a generation of chaos settles down and people settle down. And they settled down in the suburbs in a new way. But what's interesting about that period that really was ascendant in the 1950s is that this is toward the middle of Maslow's hierarchy, right? So if the early part was about, you know, physiological and safety needs, literal survival sort of stuff, now, yeah, sure, that stuff is still important. But the narrative starts to be about the middle parts of Maslow's hierarchy with the love stuff. And then around, you know, the 1960s or so, the, this vision that people had had that, that they thought would be heaven on earth turned out to be very disappointing to large swaths of the public, mainly because of the strictness of social roles in the 1950s. And women objected quite famously. Betty Friedan and the Feminist Mystique was in 1963, but the second wave feminist movement really launched around then. Anti-Vietnam protest was, you know, gaining steam around then. 
um, civil men rights too. movement. Civil rights movement, yeah, 1964, 65 was that major legislation. Mm-hmm. But men too. There was just a real set of strictures on what people were allowed to do. And so there was a period there where marriage kind of cratered, where the divorce rate within a 15-year period basically doubled. Instead of 25% of people divorcing, which was already high by historical standards, it got up to about 50%. And people were forecasting smart people, sociologists, like really trained people were saying, look, there won't be any intact marriages by the end of the century, right? That was the, those were the forecasts in the late That's 70s. That's what you call the chicken little. The sky is falling. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, but they weren't wrong just to uh-huh. be plotting out. If uh-huh. these trends continue, we'll be resorting to carbon dating to find an intact family by the 21st century. And of course, that's not what happened. Um, people eventually started to realize that after the 1960s and then into today, we prioritize self-expression too. So self-actualization, top of Maslow's hierarchy, And the idea here is that love is no longer sufficient in terms of the personal fulfillment. You could say, like, I really love this man. He's a good father. But Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not growing. I feel stagnant. And I'm not going to stay in a marriage like that for 30 years. That's something that would have been very stigmatizing in 1950. It is much less stigmatizing today because the assumption is that we should feel an authentic sense of connection, that we're really able to bring our full self to the relationship and that we bring out the best in each other. And so what what ended up happening, and this is the idea behind the, the title, The All or Nothing Marriage, is, is we set up a system that's much more difficult to succeed within. You're asking these really subtle psychological things, and not everybody is has the psychotherapeutic training that you have, right? We're sort of asking everybody to be amateur psychotherapists in their marriages. And so a lot of marriages that would have been just fine in the 1950s are are disappointing today. But the best marriages are better than the best marriages of earlier eras because achieving a connection at the top of Maslow's hierarchy is about as good as it gets. And people weren't even trying in earlier eras. You did a beautiful job of capturing. No, no, you did a beautiful job of capturing your thesis. And I have heard you talk through that before. And every time I hear it, it just lands so deeply for me. And it's so incredibly important. And what you said right at the top of it is, I just want to put a really big spotlight on, which is that this is the telling the fish that they're in water, right? We all who are loving right now make the assumption that the questions we ask of our relationships, the expectations we have are just capital T truth and have existed around the world and indefinitely. This book is so important in this conversation so important for many reasons, but one of them is it just contextualizes that this is hard, not because any individual person is doing it wrong, but because this is a brave new world. This is really different to ask of a relationship. Like, do you really see me? Mm-hmm. Am I really growing? That's Am it. I, how authentic do I get to be? As you said, these are subtle questions. They're dynamic questions. You really can't, it's hard to put your finger on it. Right. And it's new. It's not the questions that our grandparents no, asked right. or were able to ask, right? Until right. no-fault divorce, mm-hmm. which was, what, the 70s? Yeah. Fun, fun fact. Do you remember uh, who the first governor was to sign the no-fault divorce law? Tell me. Uh, Ronald Reagan, 1970, the, the icon of the right. Uh-huh. So 1970, think about, you know, maybe you, listener, weren't here, but your parents were here, right? That is not that long ago. And women didn't have the level of freedom. I mean, these like, this is a great time to be alive. And it's one of the things that I worry gets lost in some of our messaging about Uh. lofty expectations. Like, my book is nervous. It's a nervous book. It says, 
we've done some changes here, people. Like we've made some changes and the changes, the consequences of those changes are real. The average marriage is indeed a little less happy than it was before. And then again, I always really want to underscore every time I say that part, the other half that I think we don't realize is that with those changes come these amazing opportunities for connections. But it's shocking to me. I was born in 1975. Like, it was only around then or a little after that that there were marital rape laws, that right. there were uh, women can have their own credit card without the husband co-signing. I mean, by the time I was a sentient person who was aware of sociopolitical circumstances, all of those things were in the past. But we're not talking ancient history. We're talking about the era of marriage that all of us are currently occupying. That makes me think also about it is that then when when we have those intergenerational conversations within our family about relationship, which I love, I love when the generations talk to each other about expectations, about roles, it really then helps us see the generation above and why they say the things that they say or why they look at things the way that they do, right? None of us can be understood outside of our context. And so if, you know, if somebody's got a mom who's like, oh, my gosh, she's such a good partner. Like, why can't you cut him some slack yeah. through her lens? Yeah. Right. The questions that she was allowed to ask That's of right. her marriage are really different than. That's right. What the questions she watches her daughter ask. And it has a moral flavor. Right. So it's not just that mm. the questions we get to ask are different, but that the morally right thing to do can vary across a generation. For example, if you're not especially satisfied in a relationship, but you think your spouse is like a decent person. What is the morally right thing to do? Like that was a no-brainer in the 50s. You stayed. Stayed. Uh -huh. Now, these days, the way I framed it right then, I think it's probably a toss-up. But what if I framed it like you really feel stagnant in this relationship and it's upsetting that you aren't going to have this sort of personal growth? Is the morally correct thing to do to stick out the marriage despite the fact that you will be unfulfilled and, and have to live inauthentically within that context? Or is the morally right thing to do to live in accord with your true self? I mean, now I, I think there's a whole lot of us these days who feel like the morally right thing to do is to divorce. But again, that's a new set of ideas, and we should forgive our parents and grandparents if they don't necessarily see it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And through that framework, when we do make the choice to leave, this is where relational self-awareness comes in, that we take ourselves with us. Mm. You know, we left the relationship in which we felt like we were stagnating, but then it is incumbent upon us when we leave to hold up the mirror and do the reflective work because there were ways in which we participated in the dynamic, whatever the dynamic was. Right. And so right. we don't, we, that is, I guess, the nature of all this is we don't get to bypass that self-work. If we're going to yeah. ask, this is how whenever I present your thesis to kind of move us into relational self-awareness, what I always say is that I love that we have these lofty expectations. I am here for the creation right. of self-expressive marriages. It just means that we, as you said, need to potentially become amateur psychotherapists yeah. or at least develop this kind of uh, vocabulary and these paradigms and these frameworks and this willingness to look at the dynamics that we are participating in and co-creating Yeah. versus hanging back and being like, what have you done for me lately? Yeah. Yeah. Um, way you characterize that is, I think, spot on. And it's one of the reasons why, despite some alarming statistics in my book, that I think what a time to be alive in terms of marriage and relationships. Like yes. we are so lucky that we live in the current era, that we get That's to right. strive if we want for that sort of connection. It's a privilege That's that, right. that we get to do that. I will say I see no need for everybody to do it. 
And one of the ideas in the book is like, not everybody has to be shooting for the summit, the, the top of Maslow's hierarchy. And like the amount that we're asking of this one person is a whole lot. And one of the ways to try to to make sure that works is to invest a whole lot in the relationship and cultivate these sorts of skills that you and I have been talking about, almost psychotherapeutic sorts of yep. skills. Yep. But there's no rule that says that every marriage should be trying to do exactly that, nor is there any rule that says in any given marriage, you have to be trying to have the deepest connection in all domains. And at, so, at every moment of the marriage. Right. Like it's like there's two young kids and we're covered in spit up. And so the sex life isn't as good. And it's like, you know what? That's fine. Or mm-hmm. I wasn't as supportive as I wish I'd been, you know, and you weren't as supportive as you could have been. Can we think about that in a way that's like, of course, right. because we're going through something really difficult and we have fewer resources and we're not getting enough sleep or somebody's dealing with a cancer diagnosis or somebody's parent is ill. And so one of the things that I, that I love when I think about like what is the all marriage, people who are really trying to nail it, is not that they climb up to the top of Maslow's hierarchy and say, all right, we're just going to hang out here and self-actualize each other for the end, until the end of time. It's recognizing when circumstances afford the ability to try to have that super deep connection that that is sensitivity to when a real conversation both of us have the strength and the and we're well rested enough to have the sorts of difficult conversations and the book is a lot about the specific ways we can ask less because in some sense the history of marriage in in America over the last couple hundred years is a scaffolding more and more things on top like psychologically mm-hmm. speaking more and more expectations more and more um, responsibilities, best friend. Like people didn't stand across the marital altar and say, I'm marrying you because you're my best friend. But now that's de rigueur. Most people do say that. That's all well and good. In fact, I think it's terrific. But there is the corollary that no relationship is going to deliver all things under all circumstances to all people. And so we're setting ourselves up for disappointment if we're not asking ourselves not only what we want of the marriage, but what we're willing to say, this marriage doesn't have to give me the following things. How many people do that? I, I'm not sure very many people deliberately say, you know what, I'm not going to ask certain things of the marriage, and therefore I've given up the right to be disappointed in my marriage for not delivering it. So for me, it's really this blend of strategically demanding excellence where the marriage really can deliver and that sort of connection, and also being tuned in to my strengths, your strengths, our strengths, our circumstances, and being willing to say, you know what, I don't expect all of it right now. One of the things that I think can get really tricky for people is when there are those moments of deep connection, profound understanding, magnificent sexual connection, then when there's another chapter of disappointment, friction, frustration, it can feel like we've reached that, like almost like we've hit the summit and now we're here and now this is the new level at which we get to exist and persist indefinitely. And so I love in what you're saying there that we get to savor those moments of connection when we're well-rested enough, when we are attuned enough, and then kind of leverage them in those more difficult moments, right? Yes. And to know and trust that ebb and flow and to be a bit more generous and gentle with ourselves and each other. That's exactly it. And the, the metaphor that I used in the book and I, I continue to like is, what if we think of Maslow's hierarchy not as a pyramid, but as a mountain? And any, I don't know if there are any mountaineers listening, you know, like you need a lot of training, you need a lot of equipment, you need a lot of coordination. <laughs> it's pretty amazing up there at the summit, like really worth all the time and effort and skill development that goes into it. But nobody sort of lives at the summit. And so base camp is a totally reasonable place for a marriage mm-hmm. to hang out for a while. And I agree with you that if it's like, man, we 
had that amazing summit, you know, last fall, been choppy since then. We're hanging out at base camp for a while. And then when things settle, like either when some of the hurt that we've had that we've maybe caused each other has dissipated or when the cancer is in remission or, you know, the job situation is less chaotic, we gingerly start putting foot over foot again toward the summit and then enjoy that for a while, but not forever, and then come back to base camp and repeat. Yep. Yep. And I think embedded in all of that is an invitation to remember that we get to be well-resourced from all different kinds of of avenues, right? That we have friendships that exist separate from the marriage and passions and hobbies, and that all of that, rather than being a threat to the marriage, is just, it just sources us, right? Continues to help, help us not turn to this one person for every need and every interest. Yeah, it's a good while you're there at base camp, take a look around. Like, mm-hmm. oh, there's a, there's a lot of other beautiful things. I don't necessarily mean other romantic partners, although right. to each her own. But I haven't really hung out with one of my good friends in a while. Haven't really caught up with my college mm-hmm. friend in a while. That is like base camp is the ideal time to make sure that you're cultivating and sustaining those other relationships that are also so important. And then maybe it's just the two of you at the summit for a while, and that's lovely too. Right. Well, yeah, that is what, you know, what you do in the, I think it's the fourth part of the book, is you give us a set of tools that you basically like break down into supply and demand, right? That we either we either get more mileage out of the available resources, these love hacks that you mm-hmm. spell out that mm-hmm. are scientifically backed, or we invest additional resources in the pursuit of large rewards at the summit, right? That kind of going all in we've been talking about. Or we recalibrate our expectations Mm -hmm. to stave off disappointment. That's that recalibrating and turning elsewhere to have some of those needs met. So you really do, like you, you scour the science to kind of give us ways of managing these expectations. Will you share, like, what's your favorite hack? I have, I know my favorite of your hacks, but what is your, when we talk about these love hacks, these kind of cost-efficient strategies to help us maximize limited resources. Do you have a favorite one that you like to recommend to people? I think my favorite one might not be very cool. Could I give you two, one that I think yes. is cooler? So, so my favorite one is maybe the, the most obvious, which is when our partner does a thing, we have an immense amount of power, immense amount of control to make sense of what that thing is, right? The behavior itself does not have inherent meaning. It mm-hmm. only has the meaning that we give to it. And in here we stipulate that if you think your partner is generally a decent, non-abusive person, and that is at the front end of all of this 100%. self-help stuff that I'm talking about, if you really believe decent person that I'm with, then all of us get a lot of – your partner shows up late. Why? Well, because he's a jerk versus I'm sure it was just sort of a chaotic day there. Like your relationship is going to be really different. Really different. Your sex life is going to be really different in terms of overall quality if you tell one story to yourself over the other. And there is no one set of facts. These things are always complicated. So that's the one that – Wait. Is that the uncool one? Well, it's – I love that that one. That might be your favorite too. I love love that one one so much. Uh, The one that I think is a little bit cooler and maybe I'm I'm biased because this one actually came from our lab here at Northwestern is – is, you know, how do we think about conflict? Well, yeah, this is my favorite one. But that one, in fact, the audience will have already heard it because I'm talking about it in a a conflict episode that I'm doing. But yes, please, you tell us the story. Uh, Yeah, I'll do it in brief. I mean, I think the first one's really cool, too. I just think it's more intuitive. This one, I think, is a little bit newer. So, yeah, so what we did is we brought 120 uh, married couples from the Chicago and uh, Evanston community, had everybody write about the biggest conflict in their relationship over the last four months. 
Everybody did that throughout the whole study. It was a seven-wave, multi-year study. In the second half of the study, we randomly assigned people to keep doing what everybody was doing, mm-hmm. letters reporting on their conflict. But they also tried to make sense by random assignment. We assigned half of them to try to make sense of the conflict from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for everybody. And um, they wrote for 21 minutes. They did that three times over the course of a year. So 21, I'm sorry, they wrote for seven minutes thrice. So 21 Mm -hmm. total minutes. Mm -hmm. And we had a meaningful effect on the overall level of satisfaction. They had even this like how we manage conflict seems really unrelated, but it even bled into the amount of passion that people felt in their relationship, probably because they weren't having such dumb arguments. Because once you start thinking about conflict from this neutral third party who wants perspective from somebody who wants the best for everybody, you start to realize like, eh, my partner probably wasn't as much of a villain as it felt like he was in real time. I could see that maybe what I did got interpreted in a way that wasn't necessarily what I intended, but I have to admit that I wasn't perfect either. And it looks like just trying to get yourself into that headspace of viewing arguments not from our own default perspective, which on average will be self-serving, but from this broader generous perspective seems to be a general relationship win that is satisfaction and trust and passion and so forth. It's a systemic perspective. It's seeing the sequences differently and it forces in that task in order to write that narrative, you have to position yourself in the other person's perspective, which is just essential. Yeah. I mean, that those findings delighted every couples therapist, but surprised none of the couples therapists, right? Because that is that is what we all that is that's the right. heart of couples therapy. You are a generous third party. That's exactly right. It's all I as yeah. all couples therapists. Yeah. This is a gener- generous third party who says, okay, so the story you're telling about right. your partners. Yeah you know, actions is this. And from where I sit, you know, I'm seeing this as well. And yeah, so it really, it's such an impactful finding and such a simple practice. That, that's right. The, the reason why I used the term love hack, it was a riff on the life hack. I don't mm-hmm. know if your listeners know about lifehacker.com, but it's basically, are there sort of life hackers, like quick and dirty things that just make life a little bit more efficient? And the question was, are there relationship versions of those? And so the, the rule that I had for something to, to count as a love hack is it had to have two characteristics. One is it had to be minimal effort. And this, as we've seen, is like seven minutes of right. writing every four months, which most of us honestly could find time for if we really care. Um, and the other is it's something that you can do without coordinating with your partner. Because people like you and I have been talking and giving relationships advice for 75 years now or whenever this space really opened up. And it's a whole lot of effort. It's a whole lot of communication skills and date nights. And I have a chapter that's in the true. book that's, true. that's right. called Going All In that's like, well, okay, you want to go all in? Here are some things that I recommend. Again, I, my, I do that in less detail than, for example, you've done that or John Gottman's done that. But one of my chapters is like, how would I do that? But then there's this other thing that's like, well, we don't have the bandwidth right now to do the, like, the date night and to, you know, to light all the candles and buy the sexy underwear and all that stuff. But we're in danger of sort of getting into bad habits. Mm -hmm. And Marcel Proust is the one who said, you know, mystery is not about traveling to new places, but about looking with new eyes. To what extent do we have the power to try to look with just a little bit more generosity, a little bit more open heartedness toward the circumstances in the relationship? Again, presupposing that you know your partner is not an abuser. These are things that that can keep things afloat that don't force us to lower our expectations because, as we've discussed, high expectations have the cost of when you're having a certain set of experiences, you compare them to high expectations, you might be disappointed, but they have the real benefit of motivating us to try to pursue things like 
an authentic connection, trying to connect toward the top of Maslow's hierarchy. And those sorts of motivations, like you may not want to get rid of those. Mm-hmm. Can you lo- use love hacks during the sort of chaotic times to keep everything intact, hold things over until there's real time to do significant investing? Yes. And make sure that the atmosphere in the relationship is one of generosity, levity, right? Sometimes it is just like that dark humor of like, oh my God, like look at us right now, right? Just sort of that. And that is, at least in that kind of dark humor or this is ridiculous, like there's that shared quality of just, you know, it just really is ridiculous in moments and magnificent in moments and boring in moments. And it's all of those things and that sense of just... Uh, levity about it. Mm-hmm. What, one, I do have one quick thought on, on okay, the levity. And then the we're going to move bit. into the listener question. Oh, right. Yeah. I like that you mentioned levity. One of the things that I only touched briefly on in the book, but is definitely something that our lab is, the research lab here at Northwestern, um, the Relationships and Motivation Lab that we've started to investigate is the idea that every relationship is its own culture, like a micro, relationships mm-hmm. as microcultures. And I give an example in the book of this phrase, belly full of wine, which doesn't mean really anything to anybody unless you're like a pretty serious Beatles fan. But on the, this hidden track at the end of Abbey Road, Paul sings this weird song called Her Majesty when, you know, he says something like, Her Majesty is a pretty nice girl, but I got to get a belly full of wine. I want to tell her I love her a lot, but I got to get a belly full of wine. And for whatever random reason, my now wife, but then girlfriend and I were lying in bed someday and I was sort of trying to tell her I loved her. And I, so I said, you know, just saying, I got to tell her that I love her a lot, but I got to get a belly full of wine. And then that just became this way of communicating a tremendous amount of pretty sophisticated emotional experience in our own, literally our own language. Mm-hmm. And, and relationships that are flourishing develop their own rituals, their own language, um, their own in-jokes, right. right, that are mostly in our relationship consisting of the inadvertently filthy things our kids have said. Totally. Yeah. So this idea like of leaning in on the humor, it's like we get to create this thing that is our own culture in a very literal sense. That is, it has its own rituals, its own language and so forth. And that is a very valuable thing to do. Is a beautiful segue to the listener question. Great. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I could go. I mean, that's like a whole episode, right? Microcultures in marriages. You're right. It is. That becomes so foundational. It's what you tap back into. It's like, this is who we are, and this is what we've been through, and this is our history, and this is what matters yeah. to us. Okay. You ready for the listener question? Yes. This comes to us from a listener in Colorado who uses she, her pronouns. And she writes, I ended a long-term relationship about two years ago and had a pretty exhausting experience on the dating apps up until meeting a great new guy. We have been dating for about two months and already had the exclusive talk, which was exciting. I'm also noticing that since then, I've been putting more pressure on myself to do dating, quote, right, to set up a strong foundation for a long-term relationship and to not, quote, mess up since it's been so hard to find a good fit on the apps. In my previous relationship, there wasn't a lot of vulnerability or getting to know you questions in the earlier stages. And I always felt a gap in connection in the relationship. I want to show up as my best self and crave connection with this new guy, but on some level, I don't trust myself to ask the right questions and to get to know him in a meaningful way, since that was hard for me to do in the past. Would love thoughts on next steps, and thank you for all the life-changing work that you do. So Eli, you and I agreed that I would start us off here with a little bit of a kind of a clinical snapshot, and then you would tell us, you know, what would the science guide this woman in Colorado? As I read this little snippet of her story, where I go first is I'm wanting to know about the ending of the last relationship, right? Because I, th- what stands out to me is that she's putting a lot of pressure on herself. There's a heaviness um, that she's got to do this right. 
and that it's all about the questions she asks and the level of vulnerability that they are able to reach into and that, that really it's on her to figure out how to make that go. So I would want to, if I was sitting with her, I would want to, to hear the story of how the last relationship ended and if there are elements there where either she is blaming herself for the ending or her partner explicitly blamed her for something about the ending. But she came away, it seems to me, that she came away from that relationship with a sense of responsibility. And maybe it just simply is like the kind of the nature of how a broken heart heals is that it just feels tender and she's afraid of feeling the way that she felt when that last relationship ended. But I would want her to trust her ability to be present and open and curious and that that it's less about the questions she asks and more about the quality of energy or positionality that she brings in and that she can only ever control one half of the dynamic. But that if she goes in open and curious and kind of energized, then he is going to be able to kind of build off of that with her, right? That it really has to be co-created. These two are going to be building, as you called it, a micro culture. And so it's less than maybe about the right questions and more about beginning to create these experiences, these moments of humor or play, creativity, vulnerability that become the story. And what the science shows us, I know, is that the story matters more than the list of questions. And have we done this? By three months, have we done this? By six months, have we done this? It really is the story of what these two get to build together. Mm-hmm. But those are some of my initial my initial thoughts. But what? tell me what stands out. Where do you go with this? You know, one place that I want to go may not be the most straightforward or obvious place for me to begin, but I also teach in Kellogg and I mm-hmm. teach uh, the MBA students here at Northwestern course on negotiations. And so one thing that actually strikes out that is I think subtext in what she's saying is she feels like her alternatives are bad. Right. I, when she says the apps uh-huh. were so bad right. and I don't want to have to do that. And if I say the wrong thing, then I'll be back on the apps. And, you know, in the negotiations world, we call it a BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. We don't want to, to simplistically apply some of those concepts to a relationship space, which, of course, has its own unique properties. But what I would love for her is to feel like she brings real value to the table and if she takes some risks and you know moves at the pace that's comfortable for her or at least invites him to uh, or asks him is you know I'd love to have more intimate conversations I'd like to get to know you better is that something that would feel too fast for you is it too early for you are we ready for that sort of thing I would love for her to feel comfortable doing that while also feeling like look the world is a big place and I'm a good person and there are other people there are other options for me because once we end up in the headspace of if this one falls through, I'll be screwed, then we are much less willing to stand up for ourselves, mm-hmm. um, much less willing to demand a, a certain level of treatment. And and again, I think people can get overly demanding about what they're entitled yeah. to, but I, I think people can definitely get under demanding of that. And the belief, I'm not, I, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but insofar as I've read the subtext right, that she feels like, well, if this one falls through, it'll be forever before I'll find somebody and who knows if that'll ever happen. It's sort of a dangerous way to approach a relationship because you feel like one false step and I'll be thrown to the curb. And if I'm thrown to the curb, nothing will come again. Mm-hmm. And it's just not true 
most of the time. Almost yep. all of the time, the fear that we have that there will never be an X person is wrong. I can't promise that it's wrong 100% of the time. It's not wrong 100% of the time. And so there is real risk of these things. But, uh, you know, this usually isn't a story about some people just not being good partners or anything like that. So if she's willing to be a little bit bolder in this relationship, I think the odds are very good that that boldness will pay off either in this relationship or in her ability to find a good fit for her if this one isn't the right one. It's almost like she should love bravely. <laughs> Somebody should write that book. Yeah. I love – yeah, and, they, and she already has some early clues here, right? They had an exclusivity talk yeah. that went well, that yeah. felt good. So she, right. so she already has that felt sense. This is somebody who, who can handle meta-conversation, conversation yeah, about point. the relationship, yeah. about what we're building together. Right. I, I love that you brought up that subtext because I think that it's spot on and I hear it a lot from women who date men. There's sort of this like cultural narrative right now about men. You know, there's no good men out there. There's a limited number of That's good basically true. men out there. <laughs> and I do think that sometimes you got to have a little bit of a diamond in the rough. Certainly we all need to grow up in the context of our relationships. But I think the idea of there being a relational self-awareness discrepancy that favors her a bit over him makes sense in a patriarchal culture that has not, by and large, celebrated men introspecting, going to therapy, growing themselves. So I do think sometimes she may be a bit ahead of him in that work. It could be. But it, again, it kind of goes to how else is she sourcing connection and deep conversation? And is she noticing that when she asks really curious questions, he does begin to put things together, even if he's only putting it together for the first time? Maybe no one's asked him about mm. how he felt as a little boy you know, with an older brother who was like this and a younger sister who was like this. Maybe he just hasn't had those conversations, but he's really willing to learn and grow within the context of this relationship. That's radically different than somebody who's like, why are you asking me about my brother? That right. is the weirdest question. We don't need to talk about our families. Like, that's a bit more worrisome than yeah. somebody who just takes a minute to formulate and who is sort of crossing into that deeper level you know, for the first time or among the first times. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the things you said there was related to the other thought I had while listening to her question, which is there's no reason why your romantic partner has to be your primary source of emotional support. I think mm -hmm. most of us think that is the criterion that we're going to use. And God bless. That's fine. I have no objection to that. But I could imagine, I don't know if this is true for her, but I could imagine I have really close connections with my women friends. And this guy's really good in bed and a really good co-parent. And like, you know, we have these strengths. We lean into those strengths. You know what? He's not that great in the emotional talk. And we found a way, even though I would have preferred that from him, I can get those needs met elsewhere. And I don't want to crater the whole relationship. I, again, I'm now beyond her example, sure. but I don't want to crater an otherwise good relationship because this thing that I could achieve somewhere else, I actually think it's essential to achieve here. Now, again, there are legitimately deal breakers for all of us yes. in terms of what we require for our spouse or, or primary romantic partner to have. I just don't think that there needs to be one set of rules for everybody. And this uh, question asker herself or other people might be open to the idea that the emotional conversation, the depth of the emotional conversation is not necessarily something that they need from a primary romantic partner if things are really good in other respects. Mm -hmm. What you said in the beginning about the subtext is so important. It's like that I'm here because I want to be here versus I'm here because I'm scared of what's on the other side of it. And what you're challenging her to do is to just notice it as a story, to call it 
a story. And listen, we can validate that dating is difficult, that swiping on apps is difficult, that there's challenge, there's complexity, there's uncertainty. Uncertainty after two years of a pandemic is pretty freaking unpleasant. That's really understandable and valid. Yeah. And she's done it before and she could do it again. Absolutely. So she, so we want her really to be tapping that sense that I'm here because I'm curious, I'm invested. There's some things I really love that yeah. I want to keep building and kind of follow and see where this goes. Even if there is a part of her that holds on to that sense, like, I don't want to be back out there. As long as the blend yeah. of motivations is sure. leaning her towards, I'm here because it's good and cool yeah. and interesting. That's what we want her focusing on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I This is wonderful. Thank you so much to the listener who sent this question in from Colorado. I hope that you feel supported and you've got some good clarity on what to do next. And uh, Eli, thank you for being here with me. And I know that people who are new to you are going to want to know how they can learn more. So where do you want, where can people find out more about what you're up to? And You could Google me and Northwestern. So for, I do have a website, Eli Finkel, it's F-I-N-K-E-L.com. Has some information about the book. I recommend uh, go to Amazon or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I just want to say it has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're going to have, we will link the book in the show notes. And you've got two really wonderful TED Talks. And we're going to put some Eli Finkel resources for you all in the show notes and a link to the website. And um, I enjoyed being with you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Eli, for joining me for this fantastic conversation. Eli's perspectives are so refreshing when it comes to addressing relational knots, and I'm so glad we could get his helpful insights about this listener question. Thank you as well to the listener in Colorado for submitting her question. I hope our conversation gave you clarity and confidence as you foster connection in your new relationship. And I will see you next time here on Reimagining Love. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.